Episode 195, Ward Villamont, Chief Product Officer, Chief Technology Officer, and an Advisor to Startups. Mistakes are fundamentally the hallmark of growth in so many different ways, and even where innovation comes from. I'm Mark Graben. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Ward, his work, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake195. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. Our guest today is Ward Vilmot. He's a seasoned C-suite executive with over six years of experience leading fully remote teams while building tech organizations from the ground up for companies 150 to 650 employees in size and from revenue ranging from 50 to 125 million across the Americas and Europe. He's currently Chief Product Officer and CTO at RealSelf, and he's a technical advisor with his own company, his website is wardvillemont.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, Ward advises startup founders and CEOs on technical roadmaps and technology organizations, along with using what we call, sometimes referred to in this uh, podcast, lean approaches to finding market signal quickly. Uh, so Ward, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Excellent. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. We'll give people uh, the spelling here if they don't want to go seek the... the uh, the show notes, Ward, W-A-R-D, Villamot, V-U-I-L-L-E-M-O-T.com. Very French, as we were discussing before. We were yes, recording. very, very, very French, though we do not pronounce it like the French. So <laughs> more of a, a Washington um, Americanized pronunciation where uh, Ward's joining us uh, today from Washington. And you know, the, the 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 reason I invited Ward here um We'll talk about this after his favorite mistake story. There was an article written about um, Ward in, in forms about what he calls COE, celebration of errors. So clearly in yeah. the right, we're in the right place to have a discussion about that. But before you know, we talk about that concept and 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 the article, um, as we do, I won't let you off the hook, Ward. Um, looking back at the different things that you've done, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Yeah, I think there's this, I, I think your career, you know, mistakes are fundamentally the hallmark of growth in so many different ways. And even where innovation comes from, which is something I've written about, you know, ignorance and mistakes, that's how we learn. But if I think about like, I think the earliest one where I, I thought I knew the answer and, and I learned something along the way was a, a small uh, startup program that we were doing out of Amazon. It was a sister program to Amazon Fresh. This was before Amazon Fresh went national, so we were still in the Seattle area, and I was I was a part of that. And I was asked to go over and help uh, be part of the launch team for something called Amazon Tote. And just real briefly, Amazon Tote was the idea that you could get um, free deliveries to your home any item on Amazon and we would deliver it sort of like your best friend. You know, imagine if you called me up, Mark, and said, hey, Ward, could you go down to the mall and pick me up, you know, an iPod at the time? And I put it in a little tote bag and I dropped it off at your door. And, you know, that's how you got it. You know, so to getting rid of all the boxes, you just get these totes. So we go Amazon tote. And and I remember in the very beginning, you know, we were 
working with Doug Harrington and Doug Harrington really was into this, you know, working backwards from the customer mindset, you know, very much of that lean mindset. And, you know, before we even wrote really any code, I had, um, I guess it's not a mistake, but just to give you an idea of like how we were thinking about, it, I'll get into the mistake, but we, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, I hacked his browser um, with his permission to be, be clear. <laughs> I hacked his browser and he would go to the Amazon website and it was, it was, I think it was cheese whiz or cheese. It's, and uh, he would, uh, Order, he would order it and go through this, what we thought was going to be the the launch experience. And then I would get an email based on that little hacked browser experience. And I would put the Cheez-Its in my bag, the tote bag, and, you know, I'd walk down the, the hallway to his, his office and I would deliver the Cheez-Its. And we learned some really interesting things around um, having too little friction in the user experience, which was really fascinating to us. And I think to myself, you know, we didn't really have an interstitial at that point. It was just too frictionless. So there's, that's a really good, interesting learning from Amazon Tote was the lack of friction. You need some amount of friction. You know, we always talk about reducing friction for consumer. There's such a thing as too little friction. So that was a really important lesson. And again, lots of lessons in there, you know, as I, I mentioned, like we didn't even really write code. We were just learning this just by, doing some really, really, really uh, low-level, low-fidelity um, um, mock-ups. But they, the one that I had done before launch was this idea of multi-quantity. So you, you could get multiple items. We had a cart like everyone else, but you could only order one. So let's just go back to that original example. Let's just say you wanted to buy an iPad for, or iPod for yourself and someone else. The way you would do it, uh, the way we envisioned it, was that you would add the iPod to the to your tote bag and then you would go back to the detail page and you would add it again. And this was to do with some ways that we were sort of quite literally hacking Amazon's inventory system. And we knew we could only guarantee a quantity of one at any one time when we put it in, we couldn't do a promissory of greater than that. And I did a bunch of research around consumer experience. We knew that generally consumers might bought multiple items, but not multiple quantities. So you could have an iPod and a book, but very, very improbable you would have two iPods and a book. So we knew that by not having that that multi-quantity, at least from a consumer behavior standpoint, we weren't like missing out on opportunity. And so we felt very confident going to launch with this thing without those multi-quantity drop down. Right. So we we launched that and you know, every week we meet with our customer support folks. And lo and behold, the number one complaint. As you can imagine, because of the story, yeah. was where the f is your yeah. multi quantity? Aren't you a bunch of effing idiots? Like they, they were not polite to us. Like right, the, the and aren't you? And aren't you Amazon? Who should are you Amazon? How could you not have this yeah. thing? Right. So and like every week, and I kept on going to the customer support. I'm like, hey, I got the data. It, you know, it's not going to change behavior. There, you know, they, we we knew this. You know, this is just the fringe. But it was like the number one complaint in terms of volume and even quantity um, of no pun intended. So again, like I said, we were we were sort of hacking the inventory system because this was really much meant to be like this grand experiment in customer behavior. So, you know, for me to put a multi-quantity drop down, I potentially had a race condition where you could ask for more than one item and I might only deliver you less than what you asked in terms of quantity. So there was exposure to like the, the consumer experience on the other end, which is really hard to communicate via a website, right? So we did a, we did some more research. We finally sort of came up with a way that we felt like, okay, I think we can probably cover the, for the race condition, or at least we know how to dive and save for it. And again, I measured out before. I had really great data leading up to this, this, this launch is multi-quantity. We launched multi-quantity. 
lo and behold, we went back and do you know what happened? What happened? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> happened except for the complaints. The complaints went down. The consumer behavior did not change, huh. but the complaints disappeared. Hmm. So we did not open up, you know, because there's some people hoping that somehow this was materially, magically going to change consumer behavior, but all the data, you know, and we had a lot, reams and reams of data that wasn't it. And so it was just an interesting lesson for me about how, you know, in, in the Amazon tote world, learned a lot about like too little, too much friction, right? You know, we're always thinking to, to remove more friction, but there's such a thing as actually removing. So it's sort of like that Goldilocks of friction. That was like lesson number one. Lesson number two is, you know, there's a, there's a, big gulf between quantitative and qualitative understanding of the, the customer experience. And if you really want to create the best experience, you need to have both, right? Because there was a subset of our customers who really looked down on us, who, you know, weren't happy with us. And it also created a lot of operational friction for our customer support folks to, instead of being able to work on real problems, they were working on an optics problem, right? Of constantly dealing with these upset customers. And so, just recognizing that, you know, I think there's a world where a lot of people get really into, you know, reduce friction at all costs and also let the data entirely drive itself. Um, and that's the only thing that you should pay attention to. And I, I walked away from a more nuanced position of like, you know, like there's sort of the Goldilocks in everything. There is a right balance and you have to look at a lot of different dimensions. Um, even when you know the answer is correct on one side of the equation, you have to look at other dimensions to really come back with a holistic view of the customer experience. And that was a really big epiphany and a big eye-opener for me of, of and which I've carried forward and how I think about the customer experience and, and always working back is really carrying, you know, multiple lenses um, yeah. along the journey. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to dig into, but I was, I was going to ask about the learning, right? Cause you know, we, we, you know, here in the podcast, we try to emphasize, you know, we're, we're not shaming anybody for making a mistake. We're celebrating the learning. <laughs> That comes from it. Um, can can you think of a, a a situation later on where you were reminded, hey, don't don't focus only on the um, the quantitative data about the customer needs, for example. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think maybe the quantitative, but the shaming and, and sort of you know, there's there's a there's a greater bit to that too. And I'll share a slightly different story. Um, I've written about it before, but it's about me and an aunt. And it was a, a previous place of work. Uh, happy to be wearing the hat there. I, I won't say it out loud. Uh, but, you know, mainly because it's not really about the story. It's not about them. It's just about me. But, you know, I was I was on this bus. I commuted every day, an hour and a half, one way. So three hours a day kind of commute. Um, and, you know, I'm not a kind of person who generally goes out of my way to kill insects, but I don't have a problem killing them. And I'm sitting on this bus and I see this ant and I have this moment of like, I'm not going to kill this ant, right? It's crawling down around by my toe. And I'm like, you know, a little bit of karma maybe, you know? And then I had another thought. It's like, I've been on this bus for 45 to 50 minutes. This ant probably came with me or someone else. It's not like this ant's going to get off this bus and go find a new nest and say, hey, you know, I'm moving in. I mean, this ant dead, right? Like it is, is effectively dead. It just doesn't know it's dead. It's just a matter of it's a matter of when, not if, like in because of the nature of ants, right? And they've so lost I, their their well, nest, the, their their, nest. their community, exactly. their yeah. yeah, they're away from their people, you know, as yeah. it were. Yeah. And then I had a moment of like, oh, this place I'm going to work is the same kind of way. Like I am dead. I I am going to die because it was for me a very toxic environment, um, very aggressive, very sort of, you know, you would 
go have coffee with a friend like you and I could go have coffee, Mark. We'd go into a meeting and they see, you know, as you would open up a 12 gauge shotgun to me, you know, in, in that meeting. And that was just sort of part of the course. You'd be like, hey, Mark, I thought we were on the same team. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, but I'm taking care of my career and you're in my way. And so the, it was and it was sort of heralded as part of actually as a hallmark of the culture. They really like that very aggressive culture. And, you know, as a as a, a person, a long journey of of understanding that I'm a high functioning autistic person. And then furthermore, recognizing that I operate in certain kinds of ways that are very, I either I have a very binary relationship with certain kinds of environments. I decided to um, change how I, I was behaving at work. In part, that's because I grew up in an environment um, where there was a sense of professional self versus personal self, right? And we, you hear that a lot at work, you know, like show up to work, present yourself in a certain, you, 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 you act in a way that is quote unquote, and I'm using quotes, professional, right. that's sometimes very counter to your, mm -hmm. your, how you behave outside of work. Right. And right. there I've should be that. some differences. Right. But you like, you get into this, like, Oh, wow. Like you're a loving, amazing human being, but inside of work, you are like, one, you, you're a completely different person, like yeah. unrecognizable, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. um, difference. I've, I've and, seen that before. Yeah. Yeah. And what I found for myself, and this is sort of like that, and it was like trying to ape those behaviors that I thought were quote unquote professional. So here is an environment that's very aggressive, very in your face, not how I want to reflect for myself. It's not how I want to act personally. And because I'm autistic, like at, acting in a way that's inconsistent for me is, is antonym to like basically doing personality suicide. Like I just couldn't handle it. So I showed up to work the next day after having this quite cathartic, literally crying on the bus with this aunt, as crazy as that sounds, like I had a moment just crying. I don't even think the aunt actually cried, but I was crying on behalf of the aunt myself. And uh, and I showed up to work and I, one of the things that I, I'm, I don't know, noted for, but like, I try to be a very warm and caring person. And I would go into meetings sometimes and I would just look to the person to the left or the right, especially if I worked with them closely and just say, you know, I really appreciate you or you know, I could tell that they're having, a, they had a bad meeting and I might just take a moment as we're at the meeting just say, you know, just know, I, I love you. You know, I care about you. And it, not something that most people would expect to find at work. And of course it went about as well as you might expect it in the environment. A lot of people did not like it or, you know, a majority are probably indifferent. There's one or two are probably turned off. But I, what I found was there's a few people that really resonated with, and there were the people that I cared to work with the most. And that was like the other piece of this whole sort of mistake as it were is I followed a career based sort of on ego and, and chasing after the most interesting intellectual problems. But I also wasn't solving the other aspect of myself, which was the, the interpersonal connections that I needed at work that I was not looking for when I went and interviewed for companies. And so I, that was the moment that was epiphany. That was the pivot in my life where I started looking at my, my jobs and where I worked and who I worked with from a additional dimensions, not just, is it intellectually interesting, but are these people that I care about? Do they care about me? Are we solving a problem that I can sort of not just intellectually, but spiritually, emotionally get behind. And that was a complete game changer. And that allowed me to start as I would look for other jobs, people would extend offers. And I would say, thank you, but no, thank you. I've interviewed you. You're not the right company for me. You know, like intellectually, yes, I could do the job. I could knock it out of the park, but I don't think I would enjoy working for you. And I don't think you would enjoy the way I work. Right. And, and I don't need you to change to make me happy any more than I'm going to change to, you know, to make my, 
in some, some weird way, I'm going to make myself unhappy to change for you. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that sacrifice. And that was, that was a major change. That's how I ended up in central Washington. Um, and with my wife is, you know, again, you start understanding what's the most important things in your life. And I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes in my life, uh, my twenties, my thirties was pursuing my, my career at, at all costs without sort of putting it in context to sort of the greater purpose or intent of my life. Um, I don't think it's a um, zero sum game or a mutually exclusive game of, you know, that you can't have a great career um, and also work with great people that are right, right. for you again, right, right for you. Right. Yeah. And that's why I want to be really gentle with that statement. I think sometimes we take overly strong proclamations, especially in the news, the way we talk about companies, there are companies and places I know I would never want to work for even some great companies. Like for an example, Apple, I've been, I grew up with Apple. I was, I'm almost 50 now. I've been programming since I was like five, starting with Apple. So, and I always said I was going to work at Apple, love Apple, but like Apple is a very much in-person, you got to be hands-on, you got to be down and um, down with the Apple company, you know, physically. And I don't want to move. I want to be, you know, my, I don't, me and my wife, we do not want to locate to that. So I would probably never be able to work for, for Apple or Disney, for the example, because again, they want that, you know, always on in-person kind of a setting. And that's not right for me. That doesn't make them a horrible company um, any more than like I worked at Amazon. Amazon's an amazing company with some amazing people, but I can tell you for a fact that I'm really not well fit suited for their culture. Um, and I know a lot of people who it's great for, and they love that culture. And, you know, who am I to sort of turn to them and say, no, you're wrong. Right. Like, right. They should know what's best for themselves. You know, even if I would say it's not best for me. So, yeah. yeah. Bad, bad fit doesn't mean bad for all. Bad fit for yep. me doesn't mean yep. bad for all. But, you know, Ward, thank you for, you know, sharing both those stories. And, you know, there's something you said earlier that I jotted down. It's a great phrase. And I, I think it maybe connects the two stories. It connects to a lot of the stories people have told here on the podcast. And I've come to understand better from having these conversations. I thought I knew something and then I learned, right? The difference between, like we think we know something versus being able to recognize it's really more of a hunch or an assumption or a hypothesis. Yes. And, you know, I think back to even this connection to lean former Toyota people I've worked with. One of the things they would, they'd love to ask is if, you know, if you make some sort of statement, do you, how do you know that? What do you yep. know? And how do you know it? And I think it's really helpful to be able to distinguish knowledge, knowing something Versus an assumption. And sometimes assumptions are necessary. But I think when when you test an assumption with that thought process of I could be wrong, I think that that leads to, to better results instead of being stubborn or doubling down or refusing to be wrong, because we're we're all we're going to be wrong. And let's let's learn. From it's, it. If you if you think about what innovation is, innovation is doing something, something, something that someone has not done before you. And to go a little bit off in the weeds and I'll tie it back in is, um, you know, I, I came up through probably a culture and, a, and to a belief of like in, in worship of the written word, right? Declarative knowledge. Someone else sat down, they, they gathered all the information together. They put it down in formula. You could read it. You could, you could study off of it. And, you know, you'd go get a four-year degree and lo and behold, you were quote unquote. And I think you and I are Maybe you talked about this prior, but you know, just because you have a four-year degree doesn't make you an aerospace engineer, right? I have 
advanced degrees in aerospace engineering. What it meant though was I was qualified to go start at a company and become an aerospace engineer <laughs> after another 10 or 15 years worth of experience. Mm-hmm. But we have sort of perverted what it actually means to acquire knowledge. And we have an over-dependence on declarative knowledge, which is the, the knowledge written down, which is not innovative knowledge. Those are sort of, quote unquote, the knowns. When most of the work we do is actually innovative, which means it's procedural knowledge, which is, means it's knowledge acquired by doing, which means you're actually operating off assumptions and hypothesis all the time under the guise of, I don't know, but I will figure that out. And so you can get into this, um, I like to talk this fate or destiny, right? Your fate or your destiny is, your fate is you know, predetermined by, you know, the sister's fate, you know, if you, if you believe in that, or, you know, like God has ordained for you, if, if you want to go down that route. But the idea is that at some point, your fate has already been decided for you versus destiny to me is the idea that I make for myself my future. And I would argue your fate and your destiny come from the same place, right? So if you look at I know and I don't know, you can create this little like four by four, two by two grid, right? A quadrant. And you can come up with, I know, I know, which is the stuff you've already learned either procedurally or declaratively. I know, I don't know, which is the stuff that you intentionally didn't decide to go learn, right? You know, didn't take that class in accounting. And I don't know, I know, it just Oftentimes, as we get older, as you, as you know, you and I are probably about the same age, you start forgetting stuff, but it's very internalized to us. It's so deep in us. We don't even recognize that we have that as pattern recognition. But our destiny, our fate comes from that last box and does the, the future of a company, if it's being innovative, trying to solve problems, is I don't know what I don't know, right? That box is actually disproportionately larger because that's the universe of actual existing possible knowledge out there to which we only know maybe let's say one percent and i'm being very generous by saying one percent it's it's probably like point zero 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 one percent so most most of things that could be understood or are known are actually in this box of i don't know i don't know and so that is our ignorance right that's that's where our innovation comes from so if you do not have a culture if you are not set up personality wise to go i just fundamentally normally don't know then you will never truly be successful as an innovative leader nor will you be able to create teams that are innovative and that gets back to that celebration of errors which is really about which i took from amazon they call it a correction of errors but the idea is how do you create a mechanism to create a culture that's psychologically safe to make mistakes and learn? And that is what Celebration Errors is all about. Because fundamentally, what we're trying to do is just acknowledge, I don't know, but it's okay. Please go figure it out. Go make a ton of mistakes because that's how you're going to learn. The mistakes are actually going to teach you. And then through those mistakes, you go on and find new interesting mistakes to make. And that is fundamentally at the core that sort of flywheel of innovation comes from right. i don't know yeah and then you trip you fall you pick yourself up and you go oh now i know yeah and then you go do you do it all over again you find another thing to go trip up over and i think so much of us you know the last thing that i learned and i'll, I'll put this gently when i was at my first company boeing i met a lot of people i was coming out of grad school at that point i was like in my late 20s uh, coming into my early 30s so I would meet people at their anniversaries at work, and they'd been there for like 30 years, which still to this day sort of blows my mind that someone would be at one company for longer than I had been alive at that point. You know, it's just, it's, it's amazing, right? It's an amazing testament. But what the, the other interesting thing I saw a lot with folks who became used to getting experts, and I don't think this is, 
I'm, I'm using an example from Boeing, but this isn't specific to Boeing. This is true of anyone. And this is something we should all um, aspire to avoid is that they got very used to being experts in a single subject. And they got very brittle emotionally and intellectually around not knowing something. And so what they did is they tended to avoid things that they didn't know, and they focus on the things that they knew as experts. And I found that that created a, a gap in their ability to grow and be innovative as engineers. And they tended to just retread the same space over right. and over again, in part because the culture did not promote, hey, it's okay to say you don't know, Right. just go out and figure it out. And so that was another learning that, again, through people, I, I just realized I did. I wanted to become an expert, but I also did not want to have my intellectual self, um, my curiosity be stamped out um, because my right. ego, that was my read on it. My ego would not allow me to sort of say, I don't know, because the culture wouldn't allow you to say, I don't right. know. Right. Well, you, you, expected you, touched, to know. you touched on a couple important aspects of psychological safety in a workplace. The um, and, and, and there's a book um, that I really love um, that I read this year, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. So first off, you know, just go, go through it real quickly. I think you'd be interested in, yes, in, please. in this. Um, first off is inclusion safety. Do you feel uh, accepted, valued as yourself? Like well, the one, the one um, expression Tim Clark uses is, um, is it expensive to be yourself or not? So you've, yes, you've touched on it. this of environments where you feel fully accepted for the human being that you are, not the resource who's contributing whatever work. And then the second stage is learner safety, which includes, is it safe to say, I made a mistake? Is it safe to say, I don't know? Is it safe to try and learn something new? Like I, you know, in pandemic times, you know, I think this is a helpful exercise. Go force yourself to go take a class in something that you really don't know much about to remember what it's like to be a new learner. You know, I think that builds exactly yep. for people that you're, you're hopefully working with. So you have inclusion safety. Learner safety, contributor safety. Are you safe to um, do work that makes a difference? Because that's a human need. And then the fourth level that's harder to get to is challenger safety. Is it safe to challenge the status quo? And that's where innovation comes from. Yep. I think it's all connected. Like you said, if if you have a culture where um, you're only allowed to do experiments that you know are going to succeed, that's not innovation. That's the primary objective, exactly. though, in a lot of workplaces is never be wrong. Don't have a hypothesis that doesn't play out. And like you could survive that way, but you're you're not really going to thrive. Yeah. I mean, even if even if you argue 80 percent of what you should be doing is maybe more turn the crank kind of work, you still need some amount of innovation in that to keep on growing um, and evolving and changing to the times. Right. Uh, customers, you know, we as consumers are inherently fickle and, you know. How we behave, you know, and operate and what drives us today is going to be different, you know, even in a, a span of a year or two. So companies who, you know, know how to listen to their customers and and use that as, as to drive their innovation will always succeed. And those who just keep on doing the same thing at some point, um, they will be left behind. And, you know, we can see lots of companies um, gone that way. And, you know, and that's that's part that's part of the nature of companies. But, yeah, I, I love I love the the four the four the idea of like, hey, I get to first be myself, then I get to sort of acknowledge that myself is flawed, right? And then the next piece is even as a flawed person, I can contribute. And then as the, the final one is, is is really the test is like, 
with all those things said, I can also come in and I can challenge. And that's that's as much a statement about like what kind of leadership do you have and the psychological safety of the leadership being okay to say, I don't know. Um, and also being able to share in in the in the sort of leading of the company. And, that, and that's an interesting, that's I think that four stage is a really deep one. That's actually probably the hardest for a lot of a lot of companies to get to because. It requires everyone at the company, top to bottom, to buy into psychological safety. Because I've definitely been in places where I can create a lot of safety for everyone around me, but maybe my peers don't agree with the psychological safety. So the moment I allow someone to challenge me, even I, even though I might be comfortable with it, they see that my my peers, you know, my boss might see it as a weakness. Is like, oh, Ward has, you know, his team completely like undermining them and you know they question them so right. why don't i even have ward right because like, they don't understand the value of psychological well, safety so or, yeah um, there's there's misunderstandings or mistakes people think psychological safety is the safety to not be challenged like no yeah, no, no, no no creating the safety for people to challenge you and if you're not yeah. a leader who wants to be challenged then for like for one don't promise people that you're going to have a culture of psychological yeah. safety. you don't promise people um that you know uh this should this is a safe space. Like, no, like saying that doesn't make it happen. Um, but, but that, I want to go back to, you know, celebration of error, COE. I, I think you said something, Ward, that, you know, I want to explore that, that all errors are not created equally. Like, would you equally celebrate the error that comes from the part of the work where you like say, you're just cranking out work versus an error that's made when you're trying to be innovative and doing something brand new, or, or do you need to have a culture that celebrates all the errors, whether, whether. You I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously I prefer to see the more innovative, like, Hey, we were really pushing ourselves over our skis. You know, I always go back to like when I was learning to ski with my father and I used to like complain that it would fall flat down in the snow and like how horrible of a skier. And he's like, you know, no matter how good you are, if you don't fall down at least once or twice a day, you're probably doing it wrong right like you're not pushing yourself so like i want to see more of the hey we pushed ourselves on the in our edges caught like we really were pushing on the envelope of what we could do but that said you know like there is this there's nothing wrong with it operationally like that can be a celebration too because i want people to own our process their processes you know what what does lean teach us it really advocates for pushing decision making down to the lowest level in the organization who can is most informed by the decision so celebration is there is also letting them know hey it's okay if you made mistakes you know what i ask is like there's there's a few things that we go through is like i always ask my leaders cuz they'll ask should we celebrate every everything or you know like cuz we actually write a coe for that is, you know look at some point, there's diminishing returns to writing everything up, so you should be really focused on, am I going to learn something from this? Um, if you don't think as a leader, don't spend the time and energy to do the root cause analysis and look for the short-term and the long-term solutions going forward, and also make sure you follow through. That's the other thing is like I don't want a bunch of COEs where we say, hey, we could do this in the future to avoid this mistake. No, no, no. If we say... If we ha- if we're going to do a COE and we put a long term fix in it, guess what? We're we are promising, we are committing ourselves to actually following through. That's the other piece is I want to teach the follow through. You know, and there's lots of things we do with COEs, but a lot of it is about um, ideally trying to make building better and better processes that protect us more and more, giving us more and more opportunity to spend on the edges. Like when I first showed up at RealSelf, with no no disrespect to anyone, you know, RealSelf when I joined. A lot of the mistakes that we discovered in production had been there for three or four years, five years. No one, no one was paying attention. No one was looking. 
you know, nowadays we're down to about 15 minutes if something sits in production normally before we find out about it. Because over time through the CUEs, we've added better and better instrumentation, monitor alerting. We know what to look for and the teams know how to more um, proactively monitor those for those things, which is incidentally driven a lot more trust from the rest of the organization back into the technology org that the technology org is taking care of things. Because the worst thing I always tell my teams is it's, I don't mind you making a mistake. I really don't like it when someone else from the, the other, other part of the organization or worse, our customer tells us about the mistake, right? Like if you tell me about it, that's an okay thing. Otherwise, you know, you should, we should all look at it as go, Hey, we failed our partners at the company because they had to tell us that we made a mistake in production. Right. And then the worst one would be our customer coming back to us after a month and saying, Hey, you know, you have a bug in your code, you know? So again, I'm, it's, I want people to have, like you said, being psychologically safe doesn't mean being challenged. It actually means being challenged and being okay with that. And it means being accountable without being fearful of the consequences of that. And so how do you build a culture around that accountability? Um, around the ability to communicate outwards and keep people informed. So we use COEs as a way of, on our weekly business reviews, we, we share out our COEs and the rest of the organization uses COEs the same way as a broadcast mechanism. Like, hey, customer support, you know, all those complaints you're getting about, you know, yeah, engineering knows about it and here's what we're doing about it. You know, and we also have mechanisms if that's truly the case to escalate so customer support doesn't wake it to the next week to find out about this, you know, because that, that oftentimes happens, right? Like something happens in the system, at least especially in software, where customer support is on the other end of the phone, getting these people screaming at them and they have no idea what's going on because they're not involved in the day-to-day, -day, you know, nuances of production releases. So it's really important for engineering to immediately go off to customer support and say, hey, you know, all those calls, they're from us. We know about it, so you can tell customers we're aware of it. Thank you. And here's our ETA, or you know, uh, our ETC, when we're going to get this fixed, and we'll tell you once we get it fixed, right? So that makes customer support a really great ally in that case. Versus in other other companies, if you don't do that, customer support starts to hate <laughs> the engineers because the engineers keep on breaking stuff and not telling them, and they're just they just end up being the, the the poor souls on the end of the phone call getting yelled at, you know, with no recourse, no way to communicate, no way to, you know, so they never get to feel like heroes, um, which is a, is a shame. So, you know, it's how do you build that connective tissue in your organization? That's another reason why we do uh, COEs formally. So should you do it? I think the underlying question I would sort of say is um, I try not to prejudge COEs, right? I'm I'm actually trying to maximize for learning and I don't want to say, oh, your organization isn't at the edge of innovation, therefore I don't care if you make a mistake. No, I want you to improve your processes and I want you to feel ownership over it and not be fearful um, that, that your process isn't working the way, you know, because again, this is a deeper lean learning, right? You know, one thing when I was working with Shingu Jitsu, I always talk about, it's always process over people. People mm -hmm. don't make mistakes, processes do, mm -hmm. right? People don't show up to work and go, you know what? I'm going to have a really bad day today and I'm going to ensure that something goes wrong. Right. Right. Yes. You can go find me an exception case, but like, let's, let's not lose, lose that as like, that's an anecdote well, of one versus 99.999% right. of people actually do show up and care about well, the quality of their work. Yeah. Right. Well, there's a difference between sabotage and errors. And I think sabotage right, right. is pretty that's, rare. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and that's, yeah, that's another way to say it. It's like what you're talking about is a sabotage. What we're talking about is human error and the human error really drives from processes 
communications, setting expectations. There's lots of things, but it's not the person themselves that made the mistake. So the COE is is also meant to create that psychological safety. It's not you, it's us. Somehow we failed you like as a team. So how do we as a team go ensure that this doesn't happen again? And hey, since it happened to you, could you also be a part of the process? Because you probably know best like, oh yeah, that wording and that little line there was really confusing. Or that link is old and it sent me off to an old, like, well, let's update. You know, sometimes they're, they're super easy things. But again, if we don't enculturate people to go, just go fix it then. Then people won't. They'll just go, well, that's that's someone else's job. No, it's all our jobs. Like if you're touching that, go fix it. And again, that's what Lean always teaches us, makes those decisions at the lowest level. Have have the people on the line own the yeah. line. Right. Right. And yeah. so COE is really just another another means for exactly that that sort of philosophical belief. Yeah. So there's that philosophy. There are a lot of important mindsets here. And then there's the COE document. Um, that, you know, when you refer to writing these up, is there a a template available on your website or is the template even not as important as covering the main components as that Forbes article described? I think the Forbes goes over the template. I'm happy to share out. Um, It's super simple. Um, It's it's actually sort of how you talk about it. And I even have like an hour long lunch and learn. I'm happy to share out links to that or if anyone wants to, I'll come and talk to them about it. And because the format is, is again, the vehicle floor, but the, the top of it is an impact statement. And that's, I use that actually to teach, especially more junior leaders, how to communicate more at an executive summary level. Can they write that in three to five sentences using quantitative data? You know, how many customers were impacted? Uh, how long, when did it start? When did we observe it? How long was it in production? Um, was there a monetary impact, right? So again, quantifying. And this can be really useful, especially amongst people who, you know, I, I'll take engineers. Engineers tend to oftentimes be the are the most distant from a business acumen standpoint of understanding the impact to a line of code to like impact to revenue, for an example, or cost. And so when they write that COE, they're like, oh, wow, that one line of code that, you know, took down the site for 15 minutes, maybe cost the company, you know, $5 million. And like, you know, that's a lot of money, you know, like that's, that's. That's a lot of responsibility that I have as an engineer now versus they'll just go, you know, if you just look at his lines of code, they'll go, oh, it's just one line of code. It's like, yeah, it's one line of code that <laughs> took down the site, you know, and, it, you know, and that's okay at some level, but like, please don't distance yourself from that. Please understand and connect yourself to how important, how much impact you can have at this business, positive and negative in this case, not so great, but like, let's learn, use it as a learning, right? Like, let's use that as an investment in your education about like how important that one line of code is. And, and then you get into that's impact. So three to five sentences, really good to learn how to be succinct. And then what I do is I always put under the next section is resolutions. And I do short-term and long-term. I normally break it into short-term and long-term. Short-term is like, put the fire out. Okay. We had a fire. That's the impact. Fire, the extent of the fire, how much damage. Then it's short-term resolutions. Here's what we did to put the fire out. Like, you know, I don't know. We went and started the server back over. We got customers back getting their orders. Fundamentally, the error still exists, but at least we're we no longer have that issue out in production. Or we roll back the code or we fixed it. And then and then the long-term solution would be, okay, maybe it was just a simple bug fix. It might actually be something deeper. Like as you're getting through the root cause analysis, you might go, architecturally, we're set up incorrectly. And like we have this massive set of major um probability of this this reoccurring okay should we go re-architect that and again i get into like please do not pontificate on the shoulds 
like either do it or don't do it. I don't want to hear about what we should do because a lot of times engineers will use that as a, I pick on engineers. I, I deal with them a lot. I see this a lot. They'll use it as a parking lot to sort of gripe about like massive tech debt that no one's never, no one's ever going to pay down. And it's like, okay, well, let's not talk about that because it really doesn't engender anything helpful. I want you to be proactive about what you will do, not what you could do. Um, don't moralize the problem. You know, be very much like proactive. And in the bottom, it is really the root cause, which a lot of people will go, well, COE is a root cause analysis. I go, no, the, the bottom section is your your dumping ground for your root cause analysis. And that's when we get into the five whys. But I use that as homework. I What I care as an executive is the first two sections, impact and solutions. I look at the root cause largely to make sure that I have faith in those first two sections, but I almost don't need that third section of like, what was the root cause as an executive? Um, I use that again as a flyby. Like, did you actually dig into the code? Did you actually talk to other people? Um, do you really understand what you're proposing or were you just trying to like, slap this this problem shut and go away you know which sometimes happens so that's that's where i sort of if i don't quite believe in the impact or i don't quite feel like the solution is really getting at the root of it i will look at the root cause and, and that's sort of where i can interrogate um the team's yeah. thinking there so the format's pretty easy and i try to keep it to one or two pages um actually yeah. the, the, the first two things should be one page yeah well, and as it's described in that article, and again, that Forbes article that I'll link to um, titled Celebrating Errors Create Psychological Safety in the Workplace. And when you talk about impact resolutions, root cause, it sounds like that's kind of the order of documenting it, where the thought is. process is thinking Thank through you. the root cause so you know what the long-term resolution yep. or the long-term countermeasure is. But like you said, uh, that, that's where you show your work. Yep, Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's the document's deductive. To your point, inductively, you would actually probably need to write the first piece, the bottom piece, the root cause first. Though I'd argue the impact actually does not need to be done with the root cause, and that's that's the that's the one thing a lot of people trip up on is like, well, I haven't done the root cause analysis. Like, the patient's dead on the table. Like, you don't need to understand all the mistakes made. The patient's dead. Like, that's that is your three to five sentences, right? Like I'm using an extreme example from Shinjuku when we were always talking about like the surgeon and, and, but it's sort of like, there's, there's a defect. There is a problem. Like, what is that defect? How big is it? Like that has nothing to do with how you got there. That's just describing like, here, here is the outcome of that. And that's to inform people. Um, and so that can be written normally within 24 hours of a, of a defect or an issue being um, found, especially if it has material impact to the business that other people need to be aware of in short order, I would recommend no later than 24 hours from time where you sort of cut the, start writing the COE. And then that will, once you get that resolved, then go spend time doing the root cause. You probably, and very quickly in that same time, your short-term resolutions might also be written and done and executed in the same amount of time, right? Because a lot of times you're just trying to make the mistake go away. So put out the fire, short-term, long-term is make sure the fire, this particular fire doesn't happen again. And I find that that framework is very useful for people because a lot of times they try to they get trying to solve it all, doing it all at once. It's like, no, just put the fire out. <laughs> okay, now that we got the fire out, <laughs> you know, and we, we inform people of the fire, we get we've bought ourselves a little bit more time to breathe and go, okay, what would we need to do to help us make sure this problem doesn't happen again? Or if we can't do that, in a lot of instances, especially in an engineering world. How do we monitor and alert for ourselves to make sure that if it does happen again, 
the mean time to response is faster and or ensure that it's not a customer telling us, but it's our on-call person getting alerted at two o'clock in the morning if we think it's important enough. So I'll be looking for those kinds of things, you know, like, okay, was this a manual detection? Okay, how do we automate the detection? Was this seven hours from injection or seven days or seven months? How do we get it to like being seven minutes or seven seconds? Or better yet, how do we get it in unit testing before we even get it to production? so that we don't even really ever see it. And it just becomes part of the course. So you're always trying to just improve things, even if you can't necessarily eliminate things. Um, and so you can you can use a COE as a very good way to sort of gauge the health of your organization. And well, along, like I said, along the way, teach all these other things. But it's all rooted on psychological safety. You'll, you won't get the accountability. You won't get the communications. You won't get the growth if people don't feel safe. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So. They got to feel safe. We all have to feel safe. We do. You know, top leaders too. And I was going to ask you one final question before we wrap up. Again, our guest has been Ward Villamot. You can find um, his website at, at wardvillamot.com. You talk about the firefighting and the root cause analysis, and it's a visual joke because it was a cartoon that I created with somebody. I'll share it with you later, Ward. I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's a couple of firefighters. There's literally a burning house, and they're grabbing the hoses. And the one turns the other with this piece of paper and says, well, hey, wait, have you started doing your A3 yet? So this is a very <laughs> nerdy, lean Toyota production system, problem solving kind of joke. But the point is a serious one. And so you got to put the fire out first. Yep. And then we can think about defining the problem. Well, the, pro the problem is right in front of us. And we, we can do the root cause analysis um, once the sa the, everyone's safely out of the building. Exactly. And the fire is yeah. no longer spreading. Um, Absolutely agree. Yeah, that, that, I love that. I love that. So the other question I was going to ask, and it's kind of unfair to ask you this question, maybe like sort of on, on the way out, because this could be a whole 30-minute discussion in and of itself. But when you talk about the safety to be yourself and to be who you are, and you disclose on your website, you mentioned earlier um, that that you are autistic, is, is it ever a mistake to disclose something that that personal with people you're working with. I think it's only a mistake if you think it's a mistake. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm personally of the opinion, you know, every every decision has a cost. There's nothing that's costless. So for me sharing that I'm autistic, I'm sure there are people who don't want to work for me or work with me or don't want to hire me. The way I look at it is I'm okay with that because it's more important for me to be true to myself than necessarily have that opportunity. Now, a different person might decide differently. Their calculus might be different. So, you know, it's hard for me to sort of say, hey, do tell that, especially if it does mean that, hey, maybe that one opportunity, that job you really wanted, you're not going to get. I would argue it's not worth the job if it means I can't be my true self, but that's me. That's, that's, that was something that I learned. And so like, I'm always trying to, I try to take the weak form of the opinion, which is like, for me, for me. this is what right. I know. You, you, you know, you can use that framework to make a different decision for yourself. I rarely will have a strong opinion, but I, you know, I don't want to work in a world where people have to hide themselves because I don't want to work in a world where I have to hide myself. Um, and, you know, I think when we think about like, inclusivity, um, as you talked about, even from COE, but I even think of like diversity and equity and inclusion. I think that's a part of, you know, allowing people to come for as they are. And, you know, I, I quip, um, but the T and CTO, you know, people, you know, what is it, you know, technology, and sometimes I say it's chief therapy officer, because so much of my job as a people leader is really helping other people become more comfortable, more integrated with themselves, which I find a little ironic because I am autistic, but probably because I've spent the last 40, 50 years trying to integrate with myself, 
I'm a pretty good observer of human behavior and at least have some ideas of help, helping people. But I do spend a lot of time like helping just people become more integrated versions of themselves. And that's important to me. That might not be important to everyone. And some people that might be like, oh my God, that would be my nightmare if I had to work in that environment. And that's great. Like there's lots of companies that aren't like that. You should go work for those. But if you come work for me, I told my, uh, he's now a uh, head of uh, Titan Caskets. Uh, but when I interviewed him from Amazon, I said, the last thing I said as we were ending the interview, I said, by the way, I, I will oftentimes tell you I love you. And if you're uncomfortable with that or have uncomfortable with telling your team, you probably shouldn't come work with me. <laughs> that was the thing that sort of cinched the deal. You wanted to come work with me because because of that. And again, that's sort of like a it's again, I I am true to myself and I want people to be true to themselves, too. And, uh, you know, what yeah. more can we ask of anyone? I think so. Yeah. Well, Ward, we can't ask anything more of you today. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your experiences and your insights here. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate it. So again, uh, we've been joined uh, Ward Villamot. Um, go check out his website, wardvillamot.com, and uh, a great article. At first, I, I almost made the mistake of attributing the authorship to Ward, but it was actually written uh, by somebody else about um, the COE method. Um, I'll link to this in the show notes. Celebrating errors create psychological safety in the workplace. So Ward, thanks again. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Ward for being our guest today. For a link to that article about celebration of error and links to his company and a whole lot more, uh, look in the show notes or you can go to markgraben.com slash mistake195. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.